Hey, thank you again for making the time to uh, join in. My name is Jeff Fuller, pastor at Living Hope Wesleyan Church in Waterbury Center, Vermont. Hopeforvermont.org. You can subscribe on YouTube, Living Hope Wesleyan Church, or Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts. The podcast is Living Hope Wesleyan, and uh, we believe people's stories matter, and the truth of God, the grace of God is for all of us. We want to be like Jesus, who was for people, and one with a tremendous story is Kyle Strobel. Kyle, how are you? I'm doing well, man. Good to be with you, Jeff. Well, first of all, I just want to get this out of the way, all the formalities. Biola.edu, you have a uh, fancy title. You are the Associate Professor of Spiritual Theology. That's a bit intimidating for me to even read, let alone uh, know that I'm talking to someone of your stature. Uh, Did you always want to be a part of education? You know, Yes and no. I, when I was an undergrad, um, no one expected me to go to college, actually. I was a terrible student back in high school. And um, it turned out when I started studying scripture, I just fell in love. And I, I, when I was an undergrad, I kind of thought, man, college, like this is such a cool time of life. And it was so impactful on me that I kind of, I got a vision then for what it could be. I, I wrestled with being a pastor. For, for a long time and what my calling was there and eventually believed it, it was more of an academic calling kind of ministry. Um, and so once I settled on that, it was just, well, what do I teach? And so I, I kind of knew I wanted to be a professor before I even knew what I wanted to teach. So it was kind of weird. <laughs> so Kyle, for you and uh, Facebook is such an interesting creature and uh, I love it because I love making friends and contacts. And then once you make one contact, you see somebody else and I, I Facebook stock all the time. <laughs> and I saw that you were promoting a book and then I realized it was a Christian book. And then I uh, asked if you would be interested on uh this show and being interviewed. And then when you gave me your email address, I was like, whoa, there cannot be that many strobles. <laughs> so are you related? Do you know Lee Strobel, of which Lee is your? He's my father. And yeah, so yeah. what was that or how has that experience impacted you mm. knowing his books, how God's used him? Especially, or maybe even now, but especially when you were younger, were you intimidated by the fact that your dad seemed to have such a platform? Yeah, no, it's it's a weird experience. Um, and, you know, those of us who have experienced, we actually kind of find each other and, and kind of relate in those, in those ways. And I, you know, I think in many ways I had it easier than a lot of folks that have famous Christian parents, quite honestly. And, and one of the, there's two things that made it easier on me. The first is, it's just my dad has never had an organization. Yeah. I find that a lot of folks, and this can be true even in a small organization, like even at churches where, you know, maybe a father just kind of expects his son to take over after him or something like that. Like, I, I, it's amazing how often I've seen that. And now you get kind of stuck in their wake a little bit, like, who am I in relation to this? And But the, the other big thing is I, I knew pretty early on that I wasn't an evangelist. Like, that's not, that's not where the Lord had called me to be. And, and apologetics isn't, what that's not what kind of captivated me. And so it's helped that I'm, I do, even though we do very similar things, speaking, writing, those sorts of things, it it's distinct enough where I don't get kind of stuck in his identity a little bit. And yeah, but you know, the, the funny thing that happened that really helped, although that was really difficult was the realization that I'll always be considered a failure by a large amount of the population. And that, that actually is quite freeing. 
once you embrace it. <laughs> sure, sure, <you're> right. <laughs> because it was like, okay, like if I try to be him or if I try to kind of do what he does or or be seen in that, like I, I'll always be seen as a failure. And in many ways, a lot of the folks that we know of, that's how we kind of know them. Right. You know, well, Franklin's no Billy, right? Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> you get sure. those kind of things that happen. And um, and so early on, that kind of struck me and said, well, maybe I, I that frees me from ever having to try to do yeah. that. And that that was a real gift early on. So a goofy question I have for you. The movie that came out about your dad, his story, uh, did you get a cameo in that? I So I was born in that movie. Um, the one of the weirdest experiences, I swear no one can prepare you to be sitting in a movie theater with strangers and watch your birth. <laughs> that is about the weirdest thing um, that I've ever seen. Yeah, it was, I remember I was sitting there and watching the scene of my being born and was just looking around me like, whoa, this is weird. <laughs> so you can Netflix my birth. So, Kyle, I want to ask you, and of course, I want this interview to be about you, but one more question about your father. Mm-hmm. I know being a husband, being a dad, being a pastor, being a son, friend, brother, I have my days where I'm short with my daughter, mostly, who's 17, and sometimes she comes out and I was like, you need to change, and she's like, dad, I'm 17, it's like, oh, <laughs> And then I feel like, oh, man, I need to go pray more or something because it doesn't always line up with what I'm preaching on Sunday. Mm. How did you learn to respect your dad, knowing that he had this following as he pointed people to Jesus, but also seeing him as a human being day in and day out? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think one of my dad's greatest gifts to me was his honesty. And he's always been very honest. Um, and not not only to me, but even just in his preaching. Um he, he never tried to pretend to be whole um, and his brokenness was often a very much on the surface. And so he had a really rough relationship with his father and he's been very, I mean, that the movie actually portrays quite a lot of that, but he's in other settings has talked quite a lot about that. And so I, I think I was able to kind of recognize that I had a lot of, a lot better of a father than he had. Hmm. And that, that actually sets me up in my being a father. Um, and that, 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 that kind of a legacy that, 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 that I, I get to now carry forward. And that, that honesty allowed me to kind of just be honest with where I was with all of it. Cause it is hard. I mean, growing up in the mega churches with a famous father, I mean that, you know, I, I literally met someone once who, um, actually I'd known them for a while and they, they, they actually thought my middle name was Leeson because of how often I got introduces Kyle Leeson. <laughs> Leeson you know. And it's a funny thing to be to be kind of known by another. And that that's a gift as well. And so it 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 kind of can cut both ways at times. Um but it the the honesty allowed me to not have to feel like I needed to create some sort of pretend brand that I projected to the world and, and it, the flexibility he allowed me and the space he allowed me to grow in really helped. Well, that's so wise and uh, immature. Um, a question I have for you, as we look at the gospelcoalition.org where you write, and uh, this is just the page there, uh, did writing always come naturally for you? Was it kind of cathartic? When did you feel like putting words to paper? Uh, it kind of made sense and uh, you wanted to develop in those things. Yeah, you know, it is a family trait um, that that I've I've inherited. Um, and my everyone in my family's written books. Um, we're all writers. 
the funny thing is I, I mentioned I was a horrible student in high school. The only classes I did well in, like the only classes um, were my English classes. And even though I had no motivation, I, there was something about writing that I just enjoyed. And I remember I took a creative writing class and it was the first time I kind of realized that about myself. Like, oh, like I actually have a natural gifting here. Like this isn't just something that I kind of fiddle away with and do. I, like it was the first time I probably had a teacher that was like affirming that I, I, could, <laughs> I could actually do something. And, and then that, and that in college that became more and more true. And um, it is something that, I mean, I think for me, I, I'm in very, I'm a different sort of writer than my dad. It's funny. Each of us have a very different form of writing actually in the way we approach it. Um, I, I, as an academic, I'm obviously a thinker, but for me, writing is thinking. I mean, that's how I process things. Right, like right. I, I just can't really wrap my mind around them until I write them. And so I find myself writing a lot so that I can wrestle through things. And that means some of the, a lot of what I do is to write stuff that will never see the light of day. <laughs> yeah. Cause you write yourself into a corner and you're like, well, that didn't work. <laughs> I was stop there. Um, but it is cathartic. I mean, it is, it is a way to help kind of, process through how do, how do i make sense of these things now my brother is older uh my family uh all three of us were adopted from three different korean families my parents couldn't have biological children of their own my uh sister's the oldest my brother and then i'm the youngest obviously you could tell i'm spoiled and i like to talk <laughs> but uh my brother he when he was first adopted he was malnourished they thought he was going to have a lot of delays he was actually valedictorian of his class <laughs> However, when he was in eighth or ninth grade, he was in a creative writing class and he could not think of anything to write. And whenever my mom gave him suggestions, he said, Mom, that's a lie. That never happened. <laughs> and she said, that's why it's creative writing. <laughs> For you writing and people learn differently. And my question is, knowing people understand, learn differently, might take you out of context do you consider them or for you, are you just saying, hey, it makes sense to me. I researched it the best I could. Here's what I present because I do find writing sometimes it's difficult for others to read when everybody else you feel like really understands what you're saying. So I think there's a question in there. I'll let I'll let you talk. Yeah. now. No, totally. Yeah. You know, it's no, it's in many ways. My academic writing is for myself and my mm -hmm. own development. Um, for future things. It's, I kind of look at the academy as the equivalent of practice. I, I'm a, I love basketball. So I think of it, it's, yes. it's, it's basketball practice. Like you practice for the game. The game isn't the academy for me. The game is more of the popular writing and preaching and things like that. And so I'm kind of, I'm kind of sharpening my skills in the, for, in the academic guild, but then it makes popular writing that much more difficult because now I have to meet people who aren't like me, who don't just grab concepts and run with them, who don't, you know, it's, I've got to really kind of sit right. with them. And it's, it makes popular level writing very, very difficult. And it's one of the reasons that very few academics do it. I mean, I could probably count on one hand how many academics I know that write well to a popular audience. A lot try. Hmm. Um, it, it, it's very hard to do well. And so um, I, I actually work really hard on trying to kind of communicate well to the church um, but it is difficult and it is at times incredibly frustrating. Um, and you feel like you're, I mean, it really pushes as, as an academic, it really pushes us out of our comfort zone right. because you, you, we all have these kind of super egos that tell us like, 
oh, wait a second. If this scholar reads this, they're going to poke holes in it. And you have to think on a popular, you think, no, that's not what this is. Like, this is not right. for that. This is just to proclaim the truth and to try to orient people to the, the Lord. And, um, and so we, it means you have to really kind of put a different kind of thinking cap on when you, when you're doing that kind of writing. And it usually means you have to go through a lot of drafts. <laughs> And uh, again, Kyle Strobel on Twitter. It's at Kyle Strobel. Uh, you're listening to our church uh, YouTube channel, Living Hope Wesleyan Church and podcast, Living Hope Wesleyan. Thanks again for joining in. So uh, you mentioned basketball. Does that mean that you are not an Allen Iverson fan? Practice? Are we talking about practice? <laughs> I love Iverson. And I love that that, that rant. <laughs> so that takes me back. Growing up, did you have not to offend you? Did you have a normal childhood where you had sports and music, or was it just an education? And were you an academic from an early age? And is that what your parents pushed on you when you were uh, growing up? And well, where did you grow up? So I, I grew up outside of Chicago in the suburbs, about forty-five minutes outside of Chicago. And um, no, not at all. Like I was, I was into, I was, I was an athlete. Um, I um I was a volleyball player in in college and I played a little bad basketball but volleyball was my main sport and um that was my life um I um I never went to class <laughs> I was a terrible student I had no <laughs> academic ambition literally no one expected me to go to college even even when I graduated high school no one expected me to go to college I applied for college in July wow <laughs> which wow. is not even usually allowed yeah. Um, but there was a really tiny Christian college right by a place. My parents were moving. It's cheaper in, in Illinois. The farther you move out away from Chicago, the cheaper it gets. So we, we said, let's just keep going that way. And so we built that. We were building a house way out in the middle of nowhere. And it turned out there was this tiny Christian college, smaller than my high school. And I remember I sat down with my parents and I had this kind of existential crisis. And I was like, I, I don't know what I'm doing with my life, but I know I can't. I know I need to go to college. It was one of these weird moments where I just knew. And my dad's like, well, you know, there's this little college, Judson University, you know, it's right here. And I was like, okay, you know, oh, sure. <laughs> Why not? And the funny thing was they, they, they said he can't live on campus. That's already set. But he's like, if you guys can live right there anyways, he could, he could apply. And I, they made you choose a major. And of course I, I, I don't care. I have no ambition. <laughs> and I looked down their list of things and I saw biblical studies. And I remember thinking, you know, I've been a Christian my whole life. I know nothing about the Bible. I try to read it. I, I have wow. no idea. And I, um, I signed up and it, the second I sat in, in my first biblical studies class, it was like a light came on. And, but two years later, I was the lead Bible tutor on campus. And the funny thing was compared to high school, like suddenly, like at college, I was the academic in high school. They're like, that kid's hilarious. You know, I was always in trouble. <laughs> I was in the principal's office all the time. I was always doing these crazy things. And I was lost in, in all sorts of ways in high school. And, and my, th that little school was profound for me. I mean, I really kind of discovered a call to ministry in that place. That actually gives me goosebumps. I don't know if you can see. <laughs> uh, my son is a, well, was a freshman in college last year, community college in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where my wife is from. He's not an academic and he really struggled and he loves people and he's trying to follow Jesus and just hearing your story gives us great hope that God has a plan for his life. And though he did not like high school, uh, God still has a plan for his life. So thank you so much uh, for sharing that. 
Yeah, totally, totally. No, it's amazing what the Lord, where the Lord has led me. No one, especially myself, would have ever guessed. <laughs> so I want to bring up this, uh, your latest work, Where Prayer Becomes Real. Uh, I don't know if you are aware, uh, many of the listeners, of course, those that attend our church are. My wife has her eighth chemotherapy treatment scheduled mm-hmm. for tomorrow, uh, stage three, early stage three colon cancer. And it's been a journey. And now, honestly, I have not uh, read this book yet. I'm going to order it. I do have another Audible uh, coupon or whatever they call them, so I'm going to get it. Where Prayer Becomes Real, first of all, what led you to write this book? Yeah, you know, it actually, I remember one conversation particularly that that started the journey of this book. And prayer for a long time, and I'll I'll say a little bit more about this, but prayer has been the center, center of kind of my ministry for a long time. But I was at a conference. And there's a, a New Testament scholar came up to me. He's he's more senior than me, kind of well-known New Testament scholar, friend of the family. So I've known the guy for a long time. And um, he comes up to me and he, he's kind of sheepishly said, you know, Kyle, he's like, I've really struggled in prayer. He's like, I love reading my Bible, but really, really struggle with prayer. He's like, what's your go-to book on prayer? I, you know, I'm a spiritual theologian. So he's like, yeah. what's, you know? And so I was like, oh, yo, you really, you should really read. Um, and, I, and I just blanked. Hmm. And it wasn't that I couldn't think of plenty of good books on prayer. I, I know plenty of good books on prayer, but I realized in that moment, none of them do what I think needs to be done. And the problem with a book writing a book on prayer, which which struck me in this moment, I was like, there's plenty of good books I could turn you to that that talk well about prayer theoretically. Like, well, what is how do we think about prayer? What is prayer like? Or or maybe it's providence, or maybe it's, you know, you get all these different things about God changing his mind. Like we 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 think about prayer in that context. And and, and theoretical stuff is good. A good book on prayer should have theory about what makes Christian prayer, for instance, unique. But it can't just be theoretical. I mean, if if a book on prayer doesn't actually help you pray better, <laughs> that's a problem. And so it also needs to be practical. Like it should have elements that actually help you. Well, like what, what, what's actually prayer about? Like, how do I give myself to prayer meaningfully? Are there forms of prayer I can take on and things along those lines? And there's, again, plenty of good books, although very few do both of those things well, I, I find. But then the biggest thing that I think is most neglected is that it needs to be existential. And here's what I mean by that. If I'm reading a book on prayer, it should be telling me why my prayer life is the way it is. Hmm which means it needs to explain why my mind wanders so much when I pray, right? Why I sit down to pray with all sorts of good intentions to focus and, right, and right. or I'm asleep or I'm, a... and I realized that, you know, most of the books I've read on prayer, even the good ones, I couldn't tell you if those folks ever prayed actually, because it never became clear, right. you know, they, they may tell stories, about, but, but, it, it they, they didn't actually get to that. Well, what is prayer like? And why is it like that? Like, why does my, and what do I do when my mind wanders? Is that bad? Am I just being bad? Or is it okay? Is it like, how do I think about that? And so be, when, when, after I had that conversation, it was, it was, I'm like, here's a guy who's an expert in the Bible, very informed, been a Christian his whole life. And he's going, well, prayer is just baffling to me. And so my mentor, who I wrote this with, we, we started chatting um, because this is the stuff we teach on a lot. And the thing we hear most from our students is that the freedom that they find in our class about prayer, once they start realizing what what actually makes prayer uniquely Christian and and how do we understand what happens in prayer. And so we thought, you know, there's a lot of good books on prayer, but maybe we should kind of put our hat in the ring and try to give a book that really tries to help people 
really embrace the freedom that that, that prayer provides and yeah. that the Lord provides in prayer. And um, I was really encouraged the other day. Someone wrote to me and said, all, every chapter of this book, I felt more and more freedom and hope mm. in my prayer life. And it was interesting because I I, share, I, I understand that sentiment because I've read a lot of books on prayer where I actually felt increasingly guilty <laughs> and hopeless <laughs> in my prayer life. <laughs> And it really should work the other way around. And so what we attempt to do is we attempt to kind of tear down bad presuppositions about prayer. I think we all bring in a lot of really bad presuppositions. I remember um, no one ever taught me this, but I came to think that prayer should be exciting and that prayer, I, I, I should be kind of like focused and excited and illumined and immediate. And, yeah. and, and when those things didn't happen, I did what we all tend to do. I, I kind of thought, I'm bad at, I'm failing at prayer, or I've done something wrong, or I, or I would take my feelings and project those on God, right? So I, I feel like I'm doing badly. God feels like I'm doing badly, right? Yeah, something I take things that I'm experiencing and I'm projecting them on God. And then, you know, for a lot of folks, and for me, you know, prayer, prayer becomes kind of like a one-man play or a one-woman play, where now I'm trying to show God how serious I am, all right? I'm trying to, trying to impress him with my zeal or, or, with how accurate my language is in prayer or, you know, how many Bible verses I'm quoting or things. And, and what we're trying to push people into is, is to recognize the truth and to be honest about it. And it, it, you know, what's funny about prayer is I find everyone seems to share my same experience that we all at some point kind of realize this, this doesn't, I don't think it should be like this, or I, I think it should be different. This, And yet none of us tell God that. We, we kind of either talk to ourselves about that to try to get ourselves like, oh, this, 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 this something this should be, maybe we should be, but you know, we start thinking about it. But I, at no point did I ever tell God, God, you know, I, I feel like I'm a terrible prayer. I feel like things aren't, aren't going right here. Um, and the, the funny thing that my mentor pointed out to me, which was one of the most freeing things I've ever heard, is he's like, Kyle, look at Romans 8. Romans 8 tells you God looks at you and thinks, right. This person doesn't know how to pray. God knows that about you. That's some of the best good news you can hear, that God looks at you and goes, yeah, you don't know how to pray. And his, his, his response is, so let me pray for you. I'm going to put my spirit within you who's going to groan with groaning studio yes. words. And, and that provides the context for our honesty and our freedom in prayer. And that, that has just totally changed how I've prayed. That's so exciting, and I can't wait to uh, get a copy of Where Prayer Becomes Real. And, of course, it's on Amazon.com, of it's other places as well. But I encourage you to uh, get a copy of that again. Uh, it's Lee Sun. Lee Sun Strobel, is that who's <laughs> joining us today? Uh, it's Kyle Strobel. Makes it time. It's at Kyle Strobel on uh, Twitter and Instagram. But when we think about, um, you know, maybe a more personal uh, subject the way of the dragon or the way of the lamb and uh this is a book that i noticed that you were re-recording or uh just adding sections to and partly because of a situation that happened and we don't have to go into a lot of detail but i just know that ministry can be difficult or ministry is hard and if our hope is not in jesus in that surrender we're all still tempted in human beings um Recently, I found out about a good friend of mine uh, who's a pastor, just resigned from mm -hmm. his church and is now getting a divorce. Mm -hmm. And it was a lot of different issues. And COVID certainly had an impact and effect. 
can you just talk about the surrender that even Christian leaders or seminary professors need to have and put their trust in Jesus? Yeah, no, this is, you know, this book, The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb, this has been about a 10-year project for for me and my, my closest friend who's a pastor, actually. And, um, you know, we, we felt the Lord calling us about a decade ago to write a book on power. And our media thought was, we don't, we can't do that. Like we were at the time, you know, this is 10 years ago. I was mid thirties and going, I, am I the one to write a book about it? <laughs> so that makes yeah. sense actually. And so we felt like our calling meant we needed to sit at the feet of people who were sages of the way of Jesus. And, you know, one of the things I've seen in the church that has been most difficult for me, and I think it's probably been the, the hardest part of my ministry is I, I feel like, you know, sometimes like John the Baptist calling out in the wilderness, you know, and and just falling on deaf, deaf ears is that the Bible is actually profoundly clear about what power looks like. And I spent my whole life in the evangelical church. And as I've looked around, I've I've it's become very clear to me we have utterly rejected it. Hmm. And we simply do not believe that the Bible and Jesus are speaking the truth about what power is. We just don't buy it. And I think it's one of those areas where we are most without faith. And so the the difficulty for us is we wrote a book on on power. And and in particular, um, there's two aspects of that. Um, you You have 2 Corinthians 12 becomes really key passage. You know, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. The ascended Lord tells the apostle Paul. Okay, power and weakness. That's interesting. Like, how do we how do we understand that? And so the book really is about articulating that. But because we wanted to sit at the feet of these sages, we we couldn't just sit and write a book. So we the, these people prodded us to get into topics we weren't <laughs> interested in, and it really forced us to grapple with things we've seen and things we've heard. Um, um, we didn't include things we've heard as much as just things we've seen simply because we wanted to, you know, have our own kind of, kind of, we didn't want to take second and third hand stories, but it is amazing how many stories we heard and the things we've heard that have gone on in the church are truly horrifying. I mean, truly horrifying. Um, Pastors who demand their staff to stand up and applaud when they enter the room. I was talking to a friend who that's, that's what happened to to him in a staff meeting. Um, The staff meeting got, stopped the pastor left the room brought out the second in command reprimanded him sent him back in the room to remind no one the pastor you stand up and applaud and that kind of quest for grandiosity and power is you know when we started writing the book we just thought it was wrong and then we started paying attention to the biblical language and we are horrified by what we found actually Hmm. because the bible will say it's demonic (laughs) Well, and James, James and James three lays out two different ways, the way from above and the way from below. The way from above is the way of Jesus. But the way from below, he says, is unspiritual. It's earthly and it's demonic. And then he names the two attributes. This was shocking to me. The two attributes of the demonic way are selfish ambition and jealousy. And. You know, you don't have to go to many pastors conferences or academic conferences to see how far selfish ambition and jealousy is taken root in the church. 
And so we wrote this book and we we pointed to, to a series of people who we thought these are people who've utterly embodied the Jesus's way of power. And then we found out one of them had turned out to be a serial sexual abuser. Um, we only chose seven people because we wanted to be as careful as possible. And um, if I'm honest, this person was, he he was a bit of a stretch, not not because we expected this by any means. I, I still think he's unarguably the most important person who's ever lived for people with disabilities. Mm. He spent his whole life serving people with disabilities. And so he was utterly unlike the cliche. And this is, in many ways, he 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 perfectly embodies our worry in the book that power, everyone is seduced by power. Everyone is tempted towards this. And, and yet we, we presented this person as a model of the way of Jesus. And so um, I say he was a bit of a stretch because he was the only person who was Catholic. So he was only kind of non-Protestant we had, we had um, interviewed but we just thought his life so manifested. I mean, we weren't interested in if everyone had the like the same theological beliefs as much right. as you know the a ministry, sure. the kind of approach to ministry. Um, and I mean, he had mentored Henry Nowen, who um, his writings had had a deep impact on me. And so, um, so we, that was that was uh, horrifying when we found that out. We immediately asked our publisher to yank the book from press, and so we pulled the book. And we've now redone it. So actually what we ended up doing is we ended up taking his chapter out and replacing it with our story wrestling mm-hmm. through that. How do we respond when a hero of the faith turns out, you know, to have to have done these things? And, you know, um, what's been amazing is since the original book came out, um, the pastor who my whole family became Christians under Bill Hybels had to step down the ministry yeah. because of because of these issues. Um, another pastor of a church, I went to the same thing. The Southern Baptist Conference has been riddled with these sure. sorts of issues. You know, it's it's never just the the sexual abuse stuff or adultery or these things, although those things are obviously kind of, um, you know, not only abhorrent, but ubiquitous, it seems. But underneath all of those things is a certain view of power. And I think one of the reasons why we hear about it maybe more often than not in pastors than other people is obviously we hear about it more because they, they have a position of authority and they're, they're kind of upfront and things. But I think because of their authority and because they have a real power in this world, they are oftentimes more tempted than most to reject Jesus's way of power. In fact, and, and that's, what's so scary to me is how easy it is in ministry to try to foolishly sow to the flesh to try to reap in the spirit like mm-hmm. that that folly we find all the way through proverbs all the way into jesus's teaching that you know the that what you sow you will reap the great folly is to believe no no i can sow in the flesh and it, it according to james sowing in the flesh includes sowing your ministry and ambition and in jealousy and in envy and things like that and i i think we have we've we've kind of warned people about a lot of sins not nearly enough have we talked about what a dis, what a dis kind of distinctively Christian view of power entails. And so we are, particularly in the American church today, I think we are overcome with the temptation. And I think in many ways, we have been utterly seduced by the world vision of power. And I find it rare to meet a Christian who actually has thought deeply about, 
well, maybe Jesus's way of power is different actually than the world. I find that most people just assume that what the world says is powerful, that is powerful. And we just have to play that game. And I think Jesus just upends that whole thing and says, no, 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 no. The widow who put in her might literally put in more money. <laughs> right. And that's what we have to wrestle with yeah. is that it, 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 you know, it, it isn't just the, the amount that makes things meaningful. And unfortunately I, I agree with you on a hundred percent of those points and carefully speaking, cause I'm patriotic. I'm very pleased to have been adopted and raised here in the United totally. States of America, but the American dream kind of promotes selfish ambition and jealousy totally. versus surrender to who Jesus is and what he has for us. Uh, for me, a few years ago, I listened to a statistic, which what 90% of statistics are made up, but <laughs> this one said that clergy and law enforcement were two of the most insecure vocations you mm. could enter or be a part of because you had this seeming thought that you had power, that you were in control. Mm. When I think about pastors, the book was Church of Tov, maybe? Um, yeah, yeah. Or Tov was in the name. But it addressed some of these issues. Mm -hmm. How can people lead knowing that they are surrendered where does that line come with leading out of, man, I have the victory, God's called me, versus I'm a servant following Jesus? So that expression, beggars sharing bread with other beggars. Mm. How can you confidently lead when you're completely surrendered to Jesus? Yeah, well, you know, I think the good news here, and I, <laughs> I think the first thing we need to see is, do we hear it as good news? I think most of us hear it as bad news, actually. When right? Jesus says, my power is made perfect in weakness. Most of us think that's bad news, but that, that's the that's that's phenomenal news because you are so much more weak than you are strong. If you want to fail in ministry, think about actualizing your strength and minimizing your weaknesses. Like mm -hmm. that is the surefire way to absolutely fail. Now, admittedly, there are some people who can pull it off, as we've seen. They usually can't pull it off for an entire life, mm -hmm. um, but they can pull up. Now, they're few and far between. Um, there, we, we, we probably, there are household names maybe, but it's the fantasy that I could pull that off. Now, unfortunately the folks that pull it off, it's not doing them any good, right? Because now they're, they're actually sowing in their strength rather than their weakness. Um, for whatever reason, Jesus has let them do that. And I, and I've not, I'm not sure why that is. I've, I've wondered why the Lord seemed to upend my desire to do that as a younger man, but I, but not some of my friends and he just let them ruin their lives. Um, but maybe that's exactly what they needed. Uh, maybe yeah. that was the only way they would hear the truth. But once we, once we sit, particularly as leaders, you know, we have to really attend to, do we believe this? Do I believe this personally? Do we believe this institutionally? And then what does it mean to believe it? Like, what does it actually mean to believe that, that the Lord's power is made perfect in weakness? And, and, and what are some areas that we actually don't buy that in at all? Right. And, you know, I think one of the clearest areas is the discussion that came out of the late 80s, early 90s on spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts have come to be seen as natural abilities and natural strengths. Right, right. And that's interesting. You know, and where do we get probably what's the key passage for that? The, the you know, the Corinthians. Well, the whole point of the Corinthian correspondence is that you are obsessed with your power and control 
and you've you've rejected Jesus's way, um, mm-hmm. right? At, at one point, he says, "You preach in such a way that undermines the power of the cross." And so we take a, a sliver of of that correspondence, and we try to use it to actualize our strengths. I mean, I mean, if anything is is horrifyingly ironic, it's that yeah. that we've actually totally taken that passage out of context and. What we discover in that passage is that the Spirit has various gifts that the Spirit gives as, as, as the Spirit wills, and we are called into them. Now, maybe, and I find more often than not, they do correspond with natural strengths we have, and that's our weakness. Yeah. You know, now our weakness is, oh, I'm a gifted rhetorician and I'm a pastor, and my weakness is I, I try to rely on that actually rather than the Lord. It, by us, it'd be easier if I was Moses and was like, well, I can't speak very well. Like, Great. You're a mouthpiece of mine. Like what? Like you actually prefer that because now you only can rely on the Lord. But it seems the Lord calls us into places where we now really it's like it's almost like Paul's thorn in the flesh. Right. Like we're given these things and now we have to wrestle with them so that it would keep us from becoming proud. Where now we say, wow, Lord, I just preached that sermon entirely on, out of myself. Lord, have mercy. <laughs> See, this is wonderful. My uh, respect for you has certainly grown throughout this interview because early on you said that you were resigned to the fact that you would never be as well-known or as popular as your dad using my words. And now you're just talking about the importance of knowing that it's God's strength that we need mm-hmm. to rely on. And it's been evident in your life just in these few minutes of uh, of speaking. And I just thank you so much for your honesty Maybe a stretch, but talking about basketball, I'm a big basketball fan as well. I look at Kyrie Irving playing with LeBron James, and then he wanted a team of his own. He goes to Boston, me being in Vermont. I thought it was a great trade. I was so excited because I looked at the talent. Then he Mm -hmm. has all these other things that he does that I don't think he was secure when all the pressure was on him, even though he was so gifted. And sometimes when we look at the gifts, not those that surround us, then we think we're bigger than we are, but we need people. And um, Kyrie Irving, man, what a talent, but for some reason hasn't been able to lead the team as uh, some anticipated based on his talent level. And I think pastors, once we feel like, man, I'm so gifted, mm-hmm. God wants us to lead out of that brokenness, that weakness. But uh, Kyle Strobel makes some time. Thank you so much. A few questions and then uh, we'll get you out. Um I'm just so excited to have you a part of uh, what's going on, being a resource to our congregation. I want to go back to the gospelcoalition.org where you're a contributor. You add so much. Uh, for us, have you probably picked out Living Hope Wesleyan or Wesleyan mm-hmm. Arminian? Some things we'd probably disagree. We don't line up mm-hmm. 100%. There's some distinct distinctives. Sure, but sure. how important is the church to learn and grow from one another having distinctives, but really Mm. surrendered to our Savior. Yeah, you know, this is something where I think we used to do better. I mean, so I'm a, in my academic world, I'm a Jonathan Edwards scholar. Um, What's funny about someone like Edwards is Wesley was reproducing Edwards' works. (laughs) And now they would edit them a bit, but the What's interesting is he, even if he had to edit some things out, he recognized brilliance where he saw it. And the funny thing is when you, and theological brilliance specifically, what's funny about early evangelicalism is that when you look at someone like, if you took, I think Wesley and Edwards are the two fountainheads of American evangelicalism. 
And if you look at their vision of the Christian life, they're utterly identical. You'd be hard pressed to find significant difference on the ground. And yet today we seem to be so isolated and we seem to be so antagonistic. Um, I mean, one of, I, so one of the, programs we have here at Talbot at the seminary, I, I helped start a program called um, the MA in Classical Theology. And I helped start it with a Wesleyan, Fred Sanders. And it's, you know, for us, w- what we're trying to recover is an early evangelicalism that actually didn't divide along those lines. Hmm. And that kind of recognized there's actually a deeper unity here yeah. in Christ, and we do need to learn from one another. And I, I wish we had more of that. Um, and my students are always surprised when I tell them that, that, you know, in, in early evangelicalism, these weren't the dividing lines. And actually on the ground, practically, we were we were in utter agreement. And it's, they kind of expect that they'd be just as radically different things. And unfortunately, we have very few folks that actually know the tradition on this stuff. And I think it hurts the reform folks more, quite honestly, because what what ends up happening to the reform folks is they become increasingly Lutheran, (laughs) oddly. (laughs) You know, it's it's very funny. I'm not sure why that is. But, you know, you 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 look at someone like Calvin. Calvin didn't write the Institutes of Theology. He wrote the Institutes of Piety. I mean, it 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 was all based on a vision of the Christian life, actually, at its center. And. you know, there's there's very few theologians and and and, um, and pastors now because of that. I think I think actually the theologians are more to blame, but there's very few theologians that actually take that seriously. I think and that have really embraced the the vision of being evangelical. And so that's something we're actually trying to recover a bit, um, because at the heart of evangelicalism is a vision of the Christian life that encompasses all of life. And it, and in many ways, that that. The, the kind of methodism of Wesley really encapsulates what that looks like. And so I, I, I see Wesley and Wesleyanism as a, a, a kind of refraction of the same vision of evangelicalism that you see in, in reform thought as well. And again, Kyle Strobel, Kyle Strobel on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, thank you so much for being a part. Um, I just want to bring up once more, where Prayer Becomes Real is uh, the latest work. You can find that on Amazon.com, other places as well. And I'll get you out on uh, this question, hopefully a fun question. Mm. It is, you said by your own admission that you were not a good student or you did not enjoy school. Mm. Now you find yourself in a position where you give grades, you pass <laughs> or fail kids that either might not want to be there where they are or, mm. you know, they're really want to become the next Kyle Strobel. <laughs> how, how do you balance remembering not being a good student to when God really gave you that epiphany of, wow, Bible studies at Judson, this is really my calling, what God mm. has for me. Where's that temperance? Where's that empathy come in? Yeah, no, it is an interesting one. I, I do try to, to keep my mind set on where I was because it's easy to forget. Um and, you know, it's one of the things we do here that makes our program a little bit unique when we teach, I teach in that kind of a spiritual formation program is that we, I'm always trying to push them away from grades and to push them into prayer. Hmm. And I, I think the danger, and, and I think I see this in my own development, 
the danger became I, I ended up seeing the the goal as a grade and 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 seeing the kind of goal of my knowledge as a teacher's affirmation of me where I want my students and I'm training. So every week I send them for an hour into prayer and I craft a, a, an actual prayer exercise at, at the end of every class period. And I send them into prayer so that they're taking what we're wrestling through and they're bringing it to the Lord. And I'm hoping that helps reframe what this is because at the end of the day, education's good, but the form of education we know in America, I mean, this is just a contingent feature of the enlightenment. Like this isn't, Jesus wasn't doing this. <laughs> it's not like this is the only way to do it. So I, I want to make sure that they're actually taking their learning to him and not merely taking it. And, and so that helps a little bit because it reframes the goal of what we're doing. I try to be really generous with grades and, and things and, and kind of where they're at. Um, I do find the student that drives me the most nuts are little versions of me. <laughs> so I have to, it helps to remember like, yes, like I, that was me. I was that student. <laughs> so that, that helps with empathy a bit, I think. And so I say this tongue in cheek, but uh, I used to pray for good grades or pray that I would pass. But uh, as you read where prayer becomes real, I think that is not using prayer to the, uh, the point that God would have intended. Kyle Strobel, thank you so much for making the time. I'm just going to ask one question and then ask a request of you. The question is, how can we at Living Hope Wesleyan Church here in the dark, cold northeast of Vermont be praying for you and your ministry and family? Oh, thank you so much. No, I really, really appreciate that. You know, for me these days, I've, I still have little ones at home, eight, eight and ten. So they're beyond the little, little stage. But it's in that stage of life where you're 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 now having to learn a new sort of balance and and that's what i've struggled with these days you know i my calling i is very much a writing first calling for me i love teaching but those are hard to do and it is increasingly difficult to balance it actually um it, the university used to be a different sort of place and then it is today and and it used to be a place where writing was a little more on the forefront because serving the broader church was kind of recognized as, as a good. And I think that's still true, but it, you know, it, it, it's harder to balance. You know, I, I find most people, I don't think realize how hard email has been on professors, but students didn't used to have 24 hour access to their faculty, <laughs> you know? And so the, the, the faculty I talked to who've been around for several decades talk about the increasing weight on, on a faculty mm. member. And I, I've wrestled with, with the balance for my family's sake. Um, I preach monthly. I'm on the preaching team at my church. Um, I obviously write out. So finding out, kind of weighing out my calling, I, I, I find increasingly difficult these days. And so prayer for that, I think would be, would be helpful. Others, um, the Lord has been very kind to me and continues to be kind to me and providing me kind of space to do the, the various things I do. And uh, and yet I want to always kind of hold that open, recognizing he might lead a different sort of way. And Kyle, in closing, would you pray for us here in Vermont? Pray against selfish ambi ambition and jealousy. Pray that we would lead from our weakness, knowing mm -hmm. that that's when God makes us strong and complete. Yes, yes, of course. Yeah, let me pray. Father, Lord, I, I lift up um, my new friend Jeff to you. Um, I lift up living hope to you and, and the people there in Vermont. Um, 
Father, I pray that you would cast before their minds and hearts a vision of, of your kingdom. That, that the Christian life really is a life of power, but it's not worldly power. It is power known in weakness for the sake of love. And Lord, I pray that you would um, give them eyes to see that reality, give them ears to hear that reality. I pray for Jeff and the leadership there that you would help them to embrace your call of power, um, not a call to selfish ambition and jealousy, um, not a call to wield themselves, um, but a call to abandon them, their lives to you and to recognize that their lives are truly hidden with you, Lord. And Lord, I ask that you would uphold them and lead them. Lord, protect them from themselves. Protect them from the evil one. Protect them from their flesh. Um, lead them, Lord, in the way of the cross. We lift them up to you and pray that they would be lights there in the midst of darkness. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Kyle, thank you so much. Uh, we wish you all the best and uh, hope to keep in touch. Thanks so yes. much. Yes. Yeah, good to be with you. And again, Kyle Strobel, and uh, you can find the book, Where Prayer Becomes Real. The hardcover is right there, released uh, earlier this spring on Amazon.com. And we just uh, appreciate you for making the time to tune in, listen, and know that God loves you. He's for you. So let's love him and love others well. Thanks, all.